to The Bible and the English Major. I'm Marin, your host. In each episode of this podcast, we're going to analyze stories from Scripture the way an English major would, unpacking the parts to gain a better understanding of the whole. I'll keep it interesting, because I'd love to start a conversation. After all, the best part of any good story is talking about it with friends. We are doing something brand new today. I have a friend here. His name is Bobby Harrison, and he is the co-lead pastor of The Church We Hope For. He is here to talk about the stories that we've been studying because these stories are meant to be talked about. They are meant to be discussed from different perspectives. They are meant to be shared in community. So, Bobby, thank you so much for being here. Will you tell the people how we met? Yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you for having me. And as I was following along on the podcast, I knew that there was going to be an episode at some point where there was a guest. Little did I know that I would be the guest. So what a great surprise. We we met as families that our sons were both playing soccer. Our families just gravitated towards each other, I would say in some ways in opposition to other forces that were going on around <laughs> us on the sideline of families who are a little aggressively involved. And so we just found us sitting closer and closer to one another. And as I look back on that season, I think we were either really terrible evangelists with one another, <laughs> we were really terrible like proselytizing because <laughs> none of it happened. I don't remember God or Jesus or the Bible or church ever coming up in any way. Or <laughs> we did a fantastic job yeah. because we wanted to be near y'all. And so when I look back on that, I'm going, Maybe there was actually something really sweet and harmonious and good that, that just smells like Jesus. Yeah. Before we knew the name of it, we knew that we liked y'all. And yeah. so that's how we got connected along the way. I go with that second <laughs> one. There's some love in that family, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. is how I w- yeah. would say it. There's like some so love mutual. in that family and that family mm. emanates that love. Yeah. And so Thank when you. I was at the end of the season soccer mm-hmm. party yep. and got to have really my first real conversation mm-hmm. with your wonderful wife, Amy, yeah. that's when I went, That's why love emanates from this family. Yeah, real conversation developed. And and I'd say you get the best of Amy at a party. Maybe not an (laughs) end-of-year soccer party, but if you really want to get to know my wife, we bonded in eighth grade is when we first became friends at a party at the table where all the food was. We just ate chips and dip and just became best friends. I was like, look at this girl. She can hold chip for chip, stride for stride. She is not shy. Respect. So yeah, I think um, you getting to see my wife in that space and y'all connect in that way. It just makes so much sense. So love that. And so she mentioned that not only do we have the same heavenly parent, but that you all are working on building a church, Mm. the church we hope for. Tell me about your work there and what you all are doing. So the church we hope for was never intended to be the name of the church. It was meant to be a placeholder as we were trying to help plant this church that we were going to bury in soil and then just see it come to life. And so in the process of that, as we were on social media, we were just like, this is the church we've been hoping for. Mm -hmm. So what do you call it? Oh, let's just call it the church we hope for. Even in our second ever social media post, there's a video of me and my co-pastor, and we're both saying, now this is not the name of the church, but dot, dot, dot. And, (laughs) And God just had a funny wink and smile about all of that because that became the name of the church. Uh, The church we hope for is a church start in Pasadena. I'm a co-lead pastor of that church, and I'm a white man, blue eyes from the Bible Belt South. And 
my co-pastor is a Latina immigrant from Nicaragua with brown eyes, a third generation pastor, but the first woman pastora in her family. And the two of us have been friends for over 12 years. Ines, my co-lead pastor, and those titles are important to us, co-lead pastor, because mm -hmm. we believe in an equity of shared leadership between women and men and across race and ethnicity and nationality. We're really trying to embody an expression of the good news by really sharing in that togetherness. And so Ines and my wife, Amy, they met in a women's small group at our church back in Arkansas years ago. And then my wife came home and said, man, there's this woman in my small group and she's incredible. And she's a really gifted preacher. I was a youth pastor at the time. And so I invited her to come speak to our students. And I was just like blown away. I was like, what the, who is this? She's incredible. So we just developed a friendship over the years and then began to partner together in a variety of settings and contexts and realize every time we partnered together, something good happened. Mm. And then our spouses would nudge us and was like, yeah, there's something good about when the two of you work together. And as we became even more aware of what God was doing in that, I think we began to imagine, could a church exist where the two of us could lead it together? And could that be good news in a world where my body and your body are two of the most polarized bodies in mm. our country, a white man and a brown woman sure. that are consistently held apart from one another? Could we say, no, the Spirit brings people like us together so much so that we're going to lead a church together. And so our church advocates for justice and equity because we believe that's what following Jesus looks like. What has that journey been like for you? What have you learned and how have you grown Oh, my goodness. Um, what a loaded question. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Just like started right off the bat. How, how much time do we have? <laughs> we have as much time as you want. <laughs> For me, part of the journey began back at our church in Arkansas. It was a homogeneously white church for over two decades. And then our pastor, who was a middle-aged white man, had an awakening at a conference where God really made clear that our community was not all white but our church was all white. Hmm. And so there needed to be drastic differences in what it looked like to really be a true expression of the gospel, of the good news. Doesn't God bring us together and not separate and segregate? And so with great intentionality, there was an opening for a co-pastor and he said, I'm not hiring another white man. We are gonna hire uh, a black leader, especially in the binary of the black white in the Bible Belt South. Mm -hmm. And so a black man and a white man partnered together. And it was the first time in my life in my mid twenties to see does the gospel have anything to say about this? Hmm. Does the good news really have something to say about race in a way that would affect the way that we do life in church? And so the paradigm of race and the gospel began to come alive for me at that age. And so much so that I could no longer imagine just stepping into an all-white church, could no longer imagine serving in an only in an all-white church. But I also began to be very aware of my whiteness and my white maleness mm. and privilege and inherent power that came with all of those things. So a long dismantling journey that was all of the stages of grief combined in real time, <laughs> lots of mistakes, lots of messiness, lots of fumbling my way through all of that. But as I began to dream uh, of a church that I felt like God was beginning to whisper into my life, mm. it was a church that still acknowledged my whiteness, that didn't run away from it, but, but still acknowledged the fullness of all of that, but also said yes to a shared power and a shared leadership. In my relationship with my co-pastor, we say that we're not naive to power dynamics. We consistently step into spaces where I'm given privilege hmm. and access. We might be in an interview like this, we might be in a board meeting with a church that we're seeking fundraising support. And 
eye contact is made with me, right. um, but not to her. And so I've had to do all sorts of subversive things over the years, like turning my body to face her, to make eye contact with her, to say, if we're going to try to create equity in this room right here and right now, I'm going to have to do something drastic, even with my body posture, right. to let you know the energy in this room needs to be focused in a shared manner. And we're not going to play by the games that you're playing with. I didn't learn that overnight. I didn't learn yeah, how to I do something ask, like that. How did you I just, first learn it? I, I had to, at some point, begin to feel the pain of my sister or my brother of color, women in the church, or friends who were marginalized in significant ways. And that came by being near to friends, being near to people who were experiencing pain and who could trust you enough to share those painful experiences in real time. Because I wasn't aware of any of it. I, I would say I grew up in a colorblind manner. Hmm. My family didn't, we didn't talk about race. And if we did, there were jokes that were inappropriate that we didn't know whether that was right or wrong enough to say because it was such the culture in the community that could say those things, especially in the South. And so it wasn't until some of my friends began to trust me enough just as a friend that they began to open up to me about, hey, you know, that's wrong. And I'm going, oh my goodness, of course it's wrong. Mm. Yeah. It has always been wrong. Yeah. Um, so to have your eyes open to those moments to then have somebody share more of their life with you that you could then begin to hold with them. So so being in solidarity is suffering with. It's that act of compassion. It's saying that if we're in a room and you're not getting attention, then I will do whatever I need to do to try to help shift the pendulum and to also let the others in the room know this is wrong. And so just those little moments like that where I've had to learn what it looks like to dismantle, to lay down, to still live into the fullness of who I am, and not just to walk out of the room, but to try to almost like a Jesus parable, you know, teach a life lesson in real time, hmm. in a real way. And then often still leaving the room going, I don't know if that changed anything, mm -hmm. but the two of us were changed by it. Both me and my co-pastor were changed. Moments like that have brought us closer together. Yeah. Moments like that certainly have brought healing to me. And then moments like that have certainly brought healing to her to have a white man say, no, 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 you're not carrying that alone. I see right. you. I see you. Right. And, and I love you. And I will sacrifice whatever needs to be sacrificed in a moment as simple as this. And and of course, there's much bigger moments than even something like that. But it's those kinds of moments where you can come together in a way that just feels like, oh, that's Jesus. That's the spirit. Yeah. How did you get past that fragility piece? Mm -hmm. Maybe you weren't ever fragile. Yeah. yeah. But I have experienced so many folks who, when someone says, mm -hmm. hey, that hurts me mm -hmm. in a way that is racial or in a gender-related way, I am hurt by what you said. Yeah. So many people respond with defensiveness and denial instead of really being able to hear. Yeah. Did you struggle with that at the beginning? For sure. And I think defensiveness and denial are actually parts of the journey. And so not even dismissing, that sounds silly to not deny denial, but uh, <laughs> but it is part of the process. Yeah. And, I, and I really believe fragility is actually part of the process. It's an unfair part of the process. So let's name that part of it too. It's not right that we get to experience in our whiteness fragility as part of our process. But it makes sense logically that if we have not been raised or discipled since birth to see race, uh, to experience race, to have racialized moments and attacks against us in any sort of way, then of course our skin would be thin in this conversation. Of course, we would immediately take it very personally. Mm -hmm. and, and so the fragility piece, I think what I began to recognize is, yeah, that's real. The defensiveness, no, I feel it. 
I feel it rising up. I'll just say it like it is in real time. The denial, no, I still have those instincts. Those mm -hmm. are all still very real at all time. Mm -hmm. The only difference is I'm more aware of them now. And I can kind of listen to them and go, you know what? You are like that angel and devil on my shoulder <laughs> that is trying to have a conversation with me. Now, which of these voices am I going to listen to as the truest truth? And is my friend who is sharing with me something that hurt me in real time? Is that only about me? Is it just a moment that's in a, a personal attack that I've now been affronted and all of those things? Or is there a much larger conversation that I've stepped into? And yes, I play a part in it and I can own my part and I can apologize. I have done as much of that and continue to do as much of that as I know how. If you're gonna do this work, especially involving race, you better get good at apologizing, especially as a white person. Yeah. And you better mean it every time, not just through the motions, um, but you better really learn how to be in tune with what it means to hurt somebody and to own your part in that and to be willing to go forward. So I don't dismiss any of it. I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's right. I do think it's true. Mm -hmm. And um, and so those are the things that I began to walk through along the way. So when I asked you, hey, what would you like to talk about with these verses we've been studying? I was blown away and excited to mm -hmm. hear you talk, well, respond, mm -hmm. that in some ways you relate to Jairus. Yeah. First of all, that is a very humble thing <laughs> to say. And also, I was interested to hear more. Mm. Yeah, because the best part. Of this whole thing, right? <laughs> the conversation. Hey, with the you friend. just stole my tagline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when I see Jairus, I see a man of privilege, and access, and power, and authority, esteem, leadership, and religious leadership, and having access to all of that, and and the leadership that is entrusted to those of us who practice some form of faith or religion. The authority that's attached to our religious leaders holds an even different space because it's so much more intimate and personal than even a civic leader because it is so integrated with our own belief systems and our faith practice, the place that is we consider holy in a way. And so Jairus possesses all of that yeah. and yet finds himself with the same desperation as the woman that touched Jesus in that story along the way. It, and what would bring about a desperation like that in him? And then I think episode three, I believe, is when you start to name that Jairus is willing to lay it down and to live with the, the cost of that mm -hmm. in the same way that she gets to be reconciled back to her community. Mm -hmm. He will now be in many ways excommunicated from yep. his community. Yep. And there's healing in both of those things, actually. So, so what would cause Jairus a willingness to do that? Part of my story is after seminary. The church that I was raised up in, uh, the church where I first heard the gospel clearly as an eighth grade boy and stood up with tears in my eyes and said, I'm in. I don't know wow. what all this means, and but I'm in. And looking around at my friends going, are y'all in? Did you hear this? Uh, <laughs> uh, I went back home and told my mom, I think I'm a Christian now. And she goes, what's that mean? And I said, I don't know, I, but I believe it. And something happened this weekend that I believe is true. So it was that church, the church that I interned at as a college-aged kid home from school, the church that I proposed to my girlfriend at mm -hmm. on a Christmas Eve Eve service, the church that I was married in, the church that I came back to after a career in broadcast journalism because a pastor there said, I see you as a pastor. And I said, well, I don't see that, but I like you and I would love to work with you. And so, yeah, I'll come be a youth pastor under your leadership for the next seven years. The church that sent us away to seminary ordained me as a pastor. 
and then would call me back home as a pastor. So, so that's the context. Yeah. Uh, my wife and her twin sister were the first babies in this church 30 plus years ago. So that church called us home to serve as a co-lead pastor. The pastor who'd been there for 30 plus years really was the origin story of the church, was heading off into the sunset. He was the one who had the vision to make it a, a racially unified, reconciled body. So older white man leaving, they bring me in as a younger man to bring in a generation of younger leadership, mm -hmm. passing the baton on, and then to serve alongside of an older black man. And so to still advocate for racial equity and the leadership at all levels. But as I stepped back into that space, it was post 2016 election. And so I remember the first Sunday that we stepped back into this church that had always been a church where I, I always said it was the church with all the bumper stickers. You would come in and you're like, how is this NRA sticker parked next to an Obama sticker huh. parked next to a world peace, tolerate each other, get along with one another. How are all of these stickers in the same parking lot at right. the same time? Right. And I would always say it wasn't what, it was who, it was Jesus. Like Jesus right. brought all these different people together. Right. And yet as my wife and I came to that first service back after seminary, stepped out into the lobby, and we began to see people divided in a way that we had never seen before. It was mm -hmm. almost like somebody had drawn a line down the lobby. And if you were more progressive, you were over here. And sure. if you were more conservative, you were over here. And so the polarization that existed across the country, um, and it just was really named more explicitly during that season, post 2016. Sure. I think it had always been there. It was just now given access and freedom to name itself and to have to name itself in some circles. And we didn't want to play those games. We wanted to hold the tension of all of those things and wrestle and learn from each other and yield and surrender and grow and be shaped and all those kinds of things. But it just became a, no, now is the time to kind of name which side you are. Mm. And so as things began to continue to happen in our country, as a young pastor that was not going to just stay silent and stay quiet... I began to name the injustices that I began to see around us, both locally and nationally and globally, and would find resistance when whatever I shared uh, that I was anchoring in scripture, anchoring in what it meant to follow Jesus. But if that went against whatever our president at the time said or believed, mm -hmm. or a network news program was projecting at that time, then the emails would flood in. Then the resistance would flood in in a whole new way. Elder board meetings became really, really contentious hmm. in, a, in a deeply personal and, and brutal way. <laughs> and so not just even on the justice-mindedness of race and social justice and issues along those lines, but even more particularly in advocacy for women in all levels of leadership. My co-pastor had served as the women's director at that church for seven years, eight years, but she had to be the director of women's ministry, even though she'd been ordained at a church hmm. a decade prior as a pastor. But because this church did not advocate for women to be pastors, uh, so she was the director. She did a ton of great pastoral work, whether they had the title right. for her or not. But as I came back home from seminary, I recognized that my beliefs had always been advocating for women in all levels of leadership. And I didn't I didn't know if I could continue to serve in a space where that, that even just that conversation wouldn't be welcomed. And so I began to feel the tension of that and began to advocate in, in ways that I felt like were still honoring, uh, still honoring the place that I was living in, but also trying to take us the next step down the road to take those spaces. And the resistance among, I would say, a very small but very loud portion of elders and leaders within the church began to demand my resignation. I was in a space with more 
opportunity, privilege, and access than I could have been in anywhere else in the world. This is the church that raised me up. Yeah. This is... You are so in. I'm Jew of Jews. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pharisee of yeah. Pharisees. Uh, there is an office that I could have set up shop in for the next 30 years and ridden into the sunset and said, no, I'm going to get a paycheck and I'm going to do some good work here. I'm going to keep my mouth silent on some of these other things. I'll advocate in other more quiet ways that I can, but but I'm just going to keep my job mm -hmm. and I'm going to try to be a good pastor. I'll go to the hospitals. I'll do the funerals. I'll do the weddings, all of the things. And yet, because I could no longer live in spaces that felt unjust, mm -hmm. I felt like I could not stay silent. I felt like I could not just ride into the sunset. So in some ways I had a choice. In other ways, I felt like I didn't. And so I felt like I needed to continue to advocate in ways that were costly. And I think what Jairus is willing to do is there is someone who is dying mm -hmm. that is near and dear to him, that he loves, that he's willing to do whatever it takes. Right. He's willing to put his body on the line, his reputation on the line, his societal status on the line, his church leadership on the line, whatever it takes, because someone's dying. And I think I was very in tune with someone was dying. Hmm. Women were leading in this church, but weren't being given uh, the credit for the way that they were. They weren't being given the opportunity to become pastors one day, if that's what the Spirit spoke over them. Right. People of color, their pain, both in local injustices or broader national or global injustices, weren't able to be voiced in a way that could just be heard and received. Hmm. Uh, the pain was not able to be shared. We enjoyed the presence of people in color but we didn't welcome the pain of people of color. And if so, then we certainly separated that from the gospel. Um, can we get back to the gospel? <laughs> can we just get back to the gospel? Yeah. And so for me, the gospel was an embodied theology. It was not just pie in the sky, so heavenly minded that it's no earthly good kind of stuff. It really involved bodies. Yeah. It involved relationships. It involved the pains. It involved blood. All of those things of real life. And so I couldn't separate those anymore. So after two years, there, we realized it was time to resign mm -hmm. and to step away. And as we looked at the the blank canvas before us, we said, never again will we give up our freedom in the same way. We recognized how priceless it was to really be able to practice your faith and to serve in a church where your whole self would be welcomed mm. and where your neighbor's whole self would be welcomed. And so the church we hope for its origin story is is a broken story. It's being in an elders meeting where an elder says across the room, no woman will ever be a pastor in this church. And tears immediately coming out of my eyes mm. because whatever head knowledge I had about women, whatever scriptures I'd studied and dismantled along the way, even whatever relationships I had practiced with women along the way for the sake of edifying the body of Christ, all of that stuff at that point felt like head knowledge because now that thing had descended into my heart and my mm. heart just shattered. Mm. And so I think out of the brokenness of that, brokenness I still carry to this day, I think this dream for the church we hope for, mm -hmm. where women and men get to practice kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, I think that's where that was developed along the way. That is so healing mm. to my heart mm -hmm. to hear, Bobby, mm -hmm. because... I grew up in a church where women could be pastors, yeah. so that wasn't a hard thing yeah. for me, even to the extent where I went to a college where women couldn't be, mm. even though someone said, you realize women can't preach there? Wow. And I said, that's okay. I don't want to be a pastor. <laughs> like, at that stage in my life, yep. like, yep. 
no worries. I didn't realize what an issue it was. Mm -hmm. But then as I've grown up (laughs) (laughs) and lived my life, I have come across so many women Mm. who think that because they can't do certain things within a church, that that is God saying that. Yeah, wow. And and so it's so healing to hear Mm. you say that Mm -hmm. you started crying. (laughs) And the cost of this conversation is not theological principles and ideas. I remember a fellow pastor sitting in my office wanting to chop this up and talk about it and look at the scriptures together. And as he began to present his arguments in opposition to women in all levels of leadership, and I would very slowly try to respond back in a way that I felt like was still dignifying and honoring his perspective, but I'm trying to offer something different. I think the language of two hands that you use mm-hmm. uh, throughout the podcast is really helpful, holding maybe the most uh, literal surface understanding that we see in the scripture, but be willing to go deeper and to be willing to find something that's contextual and finding all those rhythms and rhymes of the literature as you're studying it as an English major. All of those things come into the conversation in that conversation specifically about women, because if you want the surface level argument, the words are there in the page for you. Right. You can say women shouldn't be speaking. This podcast shouldn't exist. Um, <laughs> all of those things. Yes. <laughs> but if you want to dig a little deeper, I think it's not that hard to find that there's more going on here. And as as we were in this conversation in my office, I just remember him saying, oh, man, this is really good practice for me to have these conversations. And, and thank you for being willing to go back and forth. And this makes me sharper. Oh, my. Uh, and then he said, you look you got a pain to look on your face. Are you okay? And I just said, this isn't this isn't a game. Mm. This isn't training for Bible debate. This is real lives. Yeah. These are real women, real stories, real face. And not just real women. My daughter, I want her to grow up in a church where she can see that women can serve in all levels of leadership. For me, that's the easier one to see because you can't be what you can't see. And yes. so I want her to, to know, okay, God, you can do anything. If you want to call me into that, you can call me into that. But I also want my boys to grow up in a church where they see a woman as a pastor. Because I believe I inherited an anemic faith over the years. Mm. Because I didn't sit under the leadership of women as pastors and preachers for almost three decades of my life. Mm -hmm. And so there's parts of my faith that I'm going, oh my gosh, that is undernourished Mm. in so many ways. That I'm trying to play catch up now in so many ways. And so I, I long for that for both boys and for girls, this is real lives. It's real people. Yeah. It's real stories. It's real relationships. So, Bobby, you mentioned in that conversation in the office that day that the pastor was proving to you why women <laughs> shouldn't be preaching. Right. And that really, you mentioned that, that idea of two hands, that how, how we interpret scripture mm-hmm. matters. And so, can you tell me more about your journey with that? Maybe as a kid growing up, and then how that began to shift for you and when and what your process was. Yeah, I think the question is, does God still speak a new thing to us? Is this a living and active book? Is whatever was written, it's done, we close the book? Or when we open it, is there an engagement with what's happening here in the text that still speaks to us in our day, perhaps in a new way, that should have rhyme with the movement of God? It should still smell like Jesus Mm -hmm. and all of those things, but it allows the opportunity for us to see that God's doing more than maybe what we saw at first. And so that's happened in so many ways for me. The, the two hands, the, the one hand is the Bible is only about my spiritual entry into heaven. A two-handed approach to the Bible is, well, yeah, that is true. But beyond that, as I dive deeper into this book, it's also about 
a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. And as she finds healing and as she finds Jesus, the Bible story I may have been told at some point in my life was, and she came to Christ and mm -hmm. now she will be in heaven with us and we will get to embrace her together as part mm -hmm. of the family of God. But a two-handed understanding of that story allows us to see that no, she was actually ostracized, marginalized, oppressed, and is welcomed back into the fold of the people of God, uh, of her community, and actually gets to play a part in the shaping and formation of that community in a whole new mm -hmm. way. So just an interpretive lens to see scripture on a broader level beyond my own spiritual existence, I think that needed to happen at some point. An understanding of my own racial identity that we covered earlier was another two-handed piece. I thought the gospel was only all of us in a colorblind kind of way. No, actually colorblind is a pretty offensive thing to say mm. because your friends they are of color. And if you don't see it, that says more about you than it actually does about their true realized experience. Right. So that needed to be uh, developed, dismantled, rebuilt in a whole new way. An understanding of women and God's heart for women in all levels of leadership in the church and the way that I can see that in scripture now in a whole new lens than maybe the most literalist, fundamentalist reading that is there waiting for us on the page if we want to be smacked in the face with it. Well, was there more going on there? It seems like Paul really is advocating for women to speak over here in this context mm. and seems pretty okay with that. In fact, says it's pretty amazing. Right. So is he talking out of two sides of his mouth or do we need to come with another hand into this conversation? I think the bigger picture, though, is is not just all of these deconstruction, reconstruction, dismantling, reimagining. I think all of it is still about seeking the heart of God. Mm. I think that's the bigger picture of really what's going on. It's not just gaining new knowledge or even new ways to practice our faith. There's the passage in Jeremiah 29 that we know the the one that's on the screensaver or the bumper <laughs> sticker. <laughs> uh, for I know the plans I have for you, dot, dot, dot. And go off to college and have a great time. God's got great plans for you. It's like, I bet God does have great plans for me in college. Um, can you send more money, mom and dad, for those great plans? Yeah, so we know that one, but tucked in there in that same passage, it says, seek me and find me. In fact, you will seek me and you will find me. It's a promise. When you seek me with your whole heart, mm. you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. And so what God is saying is I'm not a hide and seek God. I'm a seek and find God. Mm. You will find me. You will find new ways to know me, new ways to see me, new ways to hear me. But you have to seek me with all of your heart. And so not just the one-handed of the heart, mm. but a two-handed way that is, that's scary. It is. That's new territory. That is at some point going to be afraid or shaken or uncertain. One of my best friends in the world, my son Abe, uh, who is now 12, when he was a three-year-old, my buddy Jake used to come over to the house and play hide-and-seek. You know, those moments where you just need somebody from the bullpen to come in oh, and help run real. around with your kid. Yeah. He would come over, and he was like bottled Mountain Dew in man form. And <laughs> he just injected life and energy that I was like, how does any human have this much energy, especially when you're a young dad with young kids? And they would play hide and seek. The only thing is, is that Jake would hide in the same place every time to try to make it easier for Abe, my son, and Abe would know where to go find him. He would go to the kitchen, he would pull back the curtain that was going out to the patio, and Jake would always be right there. And Abe was delighted every time that Jake was there. He's like, look how smart. Can Jake not hide anywhere else? Come on. So it made my three-year-old son feel very brilliant, and Jake loved the whole thing too. Well, Jake pulls up to my house one day. And he's got this twinkle in his eye that is just a little mischievous. Uh -huh. And I'm going, oh, dear. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> but he's like, hey, let's play hide and seek. So Abe runs out, his little three-year-old legs running down the hall. 
and it looks at me and he's already excited about the game and so abe goes off to count jake goes over to the curtain takes off his shoes tucks them halfway under the curtain <laughs> closes it and then goes and hides in the pantry and i was like oh my gosh do i protect my kid from his whole world that's about to be broken right, right. now so little three-year-old Abe walks over to the kitchen curtain, looks at me, looks back at the curtain, looks down at the shoes. Oh, what a dummy. Jake, I can see your shoes. Pulls back the curtain, and to his horror, there is no human being attached to those shoes. The, the human has just evaporated. They're gone. There's nothing there. And Abe is just met with shock and fear and anxiety. It was, it was beyond that. We couldn't even get to the crying part. Just the, his whole world, his whole life was now shaken in a whole new way. And then Jake pops out and laughs. And I think my three-year-old wanted to punch him in the face, yeah. but they just laughed and played okay, and good. they did the whole thing. It was okay. In a lighthearted way, I think what that showed me was how much we enjoy going back to the place where we know we can find the thing we're comfortable finding. Yeah. And maybe in a mischievous twinkle of eye, God goes to new places, not to hide from us, but to actually provoke that thing in our heart that necessitates seeking God with our whole heart. Mm -hmm. It no longer took Abe's whole heart to find Jake. The game was becoming less fun. Yeah. That was a one-handed game of hide-and-seek, mm -hmm. but a two-handed game of hide-and-seek. Well, it necessitated God saying, no, if you really want to find me, I'm going to show you some new places and I'm going to show you some new things. And then when you do find me, your heart is going to expand because it took more for you to get to where you are right now. I don't think God's in some cosmic game of hide and seek to torture no. us or anything along those lines. But I do think God is longing for more of our hearts to have to be expended in order to come and find him. Even the seeking is actually God's presence expanding on our heart in real time along the way. Well, and what I hear you saying is that Abe was ready yeah. for an expansion of the game, <laughs> yes, right? Yes. That Abe was losing yeah. some fun and losing some joy. some wonder. Some wonder. Yeah. And, and so your friend was right to expand yeah. it and that. Maybe the next time they played, there were new hiding spaces. Not only new hiding, but a whole new way to play the game. Yeah. In a way that now Abe was going, well, what can I do right. to mess with Jake? Right. And how can and we make this more interactive and fun along the way? An expansion of the relationship, yeah. too. Yeah. I love the language that you use in the podcast early on about uh, separating between childish and childlike. We have childish notions at times about what faith looks like or not, but a childlike notion of faith yeah. is filled with wonder yeah. and imagination, and it's exciting. It's good, yeah. and I think that's what God still longs for all of us to have. And because God is God, as we grow, wonder can grow. Mm -hmm. Can this book still speak to us? Can it still challenge us, confront us, convict us? upset us, make us uncertain or insecure or afraid, can it still just steal our hearts, yeah. break our hearts, right. open our hearts in whole new ways that actually are related to real relationship and real time with real people. Relating it back to Abe, he's a 12-year-old now. Right. <laughs> if he were still looking in the same hiding place, yes. how stunted his growth would be, yeah. how unhealthy, yeah. <laughs> to extend the metaphor, well, even, God yeah. leaves us in one space. Yeah. We miss out on the joy yeah. of what can be, what can come. I think about the stories that you've landed on at the beginning of Mark 5 with both the woman and with Jairus. They had to expend their whole heart. She had sought, looked everywhere, and none of it 
none of it materialized for the yeah. help that she needed. Yeah. And it wasn't until she touched Jesus. And the same with Chiris. I imagine with his influence and power, I imagine he could go to the best doctors, have the best insurance, all mm-hmm. of the things. And yet none of it, none of it brought the healing that he so longed for and needed. And so he had to seek God's heart in a new way by actually encountering God's heart. They had to risk. Yeah. I didn't realize, really, when I started this podcast, what I'd be asking my listeners to do. Because some of the stuff I discover, it's new to me, too. Yeah. Um, And so I go, oh, dang. That is hard for me to know what to do with. But I see that it's true because I see it from these different sources and they're all agreeing. All right. How am I going to handle that within myself? Yeah. And then I have to tell the truth about it. Hmm. So then how do I put it out there in a way that respects listeners' intellect but also cares for their emotion? Because I do think risking taking a step to grab on with that other hand, I think there is joy there and I think there is wonder there. But it's also a risk because there might be pain involved or discomfort or walking around for a week going, okay, if I can't trust this, can I trust this? So I'll bring my journalism roots here and ask you a question. All of that I heard you say was so filled with a shepherding heart, like mm-hmm. a caring heart, attending to the flock of your listeners kind of heart. And that cares in a different way than we would associate with literature as the English major. And so when you come to this book and when you come to this podcast and when you hold the real stories of real lives and real people that may be sitting in the uncertainty and the I don't knows of it all after listening to this, how do you navigate that difference? And how do you sit with that difference as an English major who's coming to a Bible? And we're looking at Jairus potentially in a different way that we might experience Mr. Darcy, although we can have lots of opinions about that too. <laughs> um, but the story of this woman or the story of Jairus or the story of these religious folks or these Gentiles along the way, they seem to have a different effect on you. And I would say even on us, then the power that we allow literature. So how do you navigate what might feel like both and? How do you also recognize that it seems to have some sort of more transformative power beyond just the literature that we've studied? Yeah. Well, so I'm going to push back first. Please do. I think as a seek and find God, God calls us to seek God. But I think God also seeks us. Mm. That is what God does from the moment of our birth. Seeks us, chases us, finds us. And God uses story to chase after me. God has shown up to me absolutely through scripture, but also through novels that I've read and also through TV shows that I've watched And also through experiences in my life, like the one you just mentioned, Jake hiding behind the curtain. And God used that to help you put a framework around this important message. Mm. My younger son used to love reading the back of a book first, like (laughs) paging to the end to see how it ends. And it used to drive me nuts, nuts, because that's not how you read a book. And I remember one day just being like, you're wrecking it for yourself. Why are you doing that? (laughs) And then that very night, I went to a spiritual direction night, and 
we were just asked to sit in prayer and and listen. And my prayer was, God, please help me know how this is going to end. I don't remember the thing I was worrying about at that time. But Micah, paging to the end of his book, came to my mind, and I heard the Holy Spirit say, really? So I think our seeking God comes and finds us through whatever means we are open to hearing God's voice. And for me, story is a huge part of that. So while, yes, I think of Jairus differently than I think of (laughs) Mr. Darcy, um, I think God just uses story. And I think God has used story from the very beginning. That's why there's Genesis. That's why these stories have gotten passed down for thousands of years, because God calls people through story. And that's what led me to want to do this podcast. There's more to the story than what you just read on the surface. And when you understand all that goes into it, and when you understand that different people have different views of all that goes into it, the stories just get richer and richer and richer and more beautiful. And it is harder to say things that are hurtful about God to other people when you can understand the richer nature of his stories. So that's that's why I'm doing this. Yeah. Wanting people to understand the richness of it. I love that. And wanting people to stop being hurt by narrow understandings of what God is saying or who God is. And what I've experienced just following along is that there's more to the story than I saw at first. And in stories that I thought I had exhausted, either in a pulpit or a classroom or my own living room, just opening this book over and over, opening to these passages that you've studied, seeing the underlines that I've already done and realizing maybe there's more to underline. Whoa, this is a much bigger, there's there's more? Like even that question, there's more? I think you've helped open that door up for us who are following along in the journey in a way that there's more to the story. Mm-hmm. Just that has more power than than I think we even realize right now. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I didn't know there was this much. I chose this passage because it has spoken to me. Because times when I've been hurt by the church saying women don't get to preach, which then in my mind, the next step is because they're women and therefore are less valued by God. Right. That's how I and I think many women fill in that sentence. Of course. This passage has said to me, that is not true. Look how Jesus loves her. Look how he calls her out of her pain. Look how he gives her an opportunity to speak her truth. Mm. And then she finds freedom and joy and acceptance in that. Look at that. So I entered it on a very personal comfort from God level. But then as I studied it, I found more and more and more that I had no idea was even there. So cool. Bobby, thank you so much for being my very first guest. Yes. (laughs) I have enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for 
talking about this stories with a friend. It's <laughs> the best part. Yes, I mean, that's the tagline yeah. anyway. Yeah. Anything else you want to tell us about what's going on? Check us out at thechurchwehopefor.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, the website, Facebook, and then uh, come join us. Come be a part of what we're doing. Just come step inside the sanctuary and just experience what feels like reconstruction, reimagination, healing in so many ways. Such a kindred spirit to the work that you're doing here with this podcast of allowing us to see the story with new eyes and new ways to try to recapture wonder. Not that wonder could ever be captured, but to just find ourselves in the flow of all of that. And so I think that's my invitation, whether that's at our church or another one where you can find that. That's my hope too. Thank you for holding my story today. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for sharing it. Join me next time for a brand new series on the woman at the well and all the other women at wells the Bible contains. I'd also love it if you would subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss anything and share it with a couple of friends. Please join me too on Facebook or Instagram. You'll find the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. As we are completing our very first series, I am so grateful for how much I enjoy doing this, and I hope that you are enjoying it too. Thanks, friends.